Later, he learned that he was in the water for almost four hours, and had drifted nearly a mile from the rig before being picked up by a supply ship that had rushed to the scene. He was pulled on board, carried below decks, and reunited with other survivors. Dawson was shivering from hypothermia, and he was dazed. Though his vision was blurred, he was later diagnosed with a moderate concussion, he recognized how lucky he'd been. He saw men with vicious burns on their arms and shoulders, and others bleeding from their ears or nursing broken bones. He knew most of them by name. There were only so many places for people to go on the rig. It was essentially a small village in the middle of the ocean, and everyone made it to the cafeteria or the recreation room or gym sooner or later. One man, however, looked only vaguely familiar, a man who seemed to be staring at him from across the crowded room. Dark-haired and maybe forty years old, he was wearing a blue windbreaker that someone on the ship had probably lent him. Dawson thought he looked out of place, more like an office worker than a roughneck. The man waved, suddenly triggering memories of the figure he'd spotted earlier in the water. It was him. And all at once, Dawson felt the hairs on the back of his neck rise. Before he could identify the source of his unease, a blanket was thrown over his shoulders and he was ushered to a spot in the corner where a medical officer waited to examine him. By the time he sat back down, the dark-haired man was gone. Over the next hour, more survivors were brought aboard. But as his body began to warm, Dawson started to wonder about the rest of the crew. Men he'd worked with for years were nowhere to be seen. Later he would learn that twenty-four people were killed. Most, but not all, of the bodies were eventually found. While he recovered in the hospital, Dawson couldn't stop thinking about the fact that some families had no real way to say goodbye. He'd had trouble sleeping since the explosion, not because of any nightmares, but because he couldn't shake the feeling of being watched. He felt haunted, as ridiculous as that sounded. Day and night, he occasionally caught a glimpse of movement from the corner of his eye, but whenever he turned, there was never anyone or anything there that could explain it. He wondered if he was losing his mind. The doctor suggested he was having post-traumatic reactions to the stress of the accident, and that his brain might still be healing from the concussion. It made sense and sounded logical, but it didn't feel right to Dawson. He nodded, anyway. The doctor gave him a prescription for sleeping pills, but Dawson never bothered to fill it. He was given a paid leave of absence for six months while the legal wheels began to grind. Three weeks later, the company offered him a settlement and he signed the papers. By then, he'd already been contacted by a half-dozen attorneys, all of them racing to be the first to file a class-action suit, but he didn't want the hassle. He took the settlement offer and deposited the check on the day it arrived. With enough in his account to make some people think he was rich, he went to his bank and wired most of the money to an account in the Cayman Islands. From there, it was forwarded to a corporate account in Panama that had been opened with minimal paperwork before finally being wired to its final destination. The money, as always, was virtually impossible to trace. He'd kept only enough for the rent and a few other expenses. He didn't need much, nor did he want much. He lived in a single-wide trailer at the end of a dirt road on the outskirts of New Orleans, and people who saw it probably assumed that its primary redeeming feature was 
that it hadn't flooded during Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Featuring plastic siding that was cracked and fading, the trailer squatted on stacked cinder blocks, a temporary foundation that had somehow become permanent over time. It had a single bedroom and bath, a cramped living area, and a kitchen with barely enough room to house a mini-refrigerator. Insulation was almost non-existent, and humidity had warped the floors over the years, making it seem like he was always walking on a slant. The linoleum in the kitchen was cracking in the corners, the minimal carpet was threadbare, and he'd furnished the narrow space with items he'd picked up over the years at thrift stores. Not a single photograph adorned the walls. Though he'd lived there for almost fifteen years, it was less a home than a place where he happened to eat and sleep and take his showers. Despite its age, it was almost always as pristine as the homes in the Garden District.